Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Up till now, we've been very restrained on the pod and we've not talked about Brexit. But now we're formally leaving and we've entered negotiations. It's time to delve into what leaving the EU, the regulations and the jurisdiction of the European courts might mean for our environment. And I'm delighted today to be joined by two experts in this field. I have in the studio two Toms. Dr Tom Appleby, who's an Associate Professor at the University of West of England, where although he's based in the Centre for Architecture and the Built Environment, he really leads on work around fisheries and marine life. He's a trustee of Blue Marine Foundation, a good friend of the pod, and he's been working in and around um, the environment to do with oceans and marine life for 20 years. He's also an expert on Brexit and fisheries, and he's come to the studio hot foot from the House of Lords, where he's tabled some amendments to the bill. So we're really excited to have him on the pod. So thank you, Tom, for coming. Our second Tom is Dr Tom West, who's from Client Earth. He joined Client Earth originally as an economics and legal advisor with the biodiversity team, but he's now the Client Earth expert on Brexit. Um, Tom's background is he has a PhD from the University of Nottingham School of Law and um, has been a trustee of a number of organisations. He's had published work on environmental justice and climate change and theories of valuation with international environmental law. So as you can see, we have a huge amount of expertise in the studio. Tom and Tom, welcome and thank you very much for coming on Planet Pod. Great, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So to get us started, can we just have a little think about what Brexit might mean for the environment in the UK? I mean, maybe some of the knowns and unknowns and possibly some of the opportunities or disadvantages that you see. So maybe just frame the conversation for us a little bit. Yeah. Can I start with you, Tom W? Sure. Well, I mean, it's certainly shaken things up quite a lot. I think leaving the EU really sort of blows open environmental policy in the UK. For so long, we've relied on the EU to, to come up with and enforce a lot of our environmental law. And so leaving the EU, we leave that behind. The last few years has been quite a journey in working out exactly what that means to which parts of the UK and on what timeframes, etc., and um, I, I guess, as I say, it shakes things up where things land really matters. And we're starting to see a little bit more where some of those things are. We've got the Environment Bill, Fisheries Bill, Agriculture Bill. UK is starting to publish its uh, negotiating objectives for its uh, relationship with the EU, wider trade agreements. Um, and, and as you start to piece a lot of these things together, you, you start to see some of the stuff that we had that were real benefits of EU membership. And you go, well, look, yes, you can replace those in better ways. But the way the government's doing that so far to date certainly leaves room for improvement, I'd say. So is there an anxiety about that, particularly in terms of some of the legal redress? Because I know I've spoken to colleagues of yours at Client Earth and they've said some of the anxiety is that we could always then take things where we saw the government falling short against our own laws or European laws. We could then take them to the European court, for example. And there's a real area of of uh, you know, gap, I guess, isn't there? There's a vacuum there in terms of how we deal with that particular aspect. Yeah, so we want, one of the advantages of EU membership was the role of the European Commission, European Court, uh, the Commission's role as the guardian of the treaties, making sure that uh, EU law was, was, was complied with and, and, 
able to enforce that through the court uh, where necessary uh, and the court being empowered to issue fines where necessary, which is uh, quite the incentive to comply with the law. Um, you leave the EU, you leave that behind uh, and you, you, you leave behind that sort of supranational level. And I think that's really important as a thing which you can't really recreate as a as a country going its own way. That kind of institution which works on that overarching level to look at even application and making sure sort of everyone's watching over each other. Um, part of the Environment Bill is the establishment of a new environmental watchdog and, and uh, ourselves and, and other green groups through the Green UK Coalition, uh, we campaigned for the introduction of a new watchdog uh, as part of leaving the EU. And in some ways, like I say, you can't replace that supranational level. What you could do with this new watchdog, the OEP, as it's known, the Office for Environmental Protection, you have a body which is much closer to domestic decision-making, so it potentially could get much closer into sort of local authority decision-making agencies and work more closely to improve that decision-making. But the current version of the bill doesn't necessarily uh, paint the picture of a body which is going to be independent enough or have the right powers to do that. I was going to right. say, who watches over the watchdog? Because that's the whole point, isn't it? When you talk about that supranational, that's a that's a, a European jurisdiction looking over all of the members of the European Union. So it's got that sense of kind of an overview, but also holding those individual countries to account. If we've just got our own body holding our own government to account, it feels like there might be a bit of a gap there. Yeah, you end up with Ofsted. <laughs> and we which, all know how effective Ofsted is. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, well, it's been a disaster at the most currently because it's controlled too closely by government. If its paymasters are... If you're trying to essentially uh, watch your own paymasters, that really doesn't work. The funding bit's really key. Yeah, I agree. And there, there are ways you could you could sort of tweak around with what's there, tie stuff to parliament rather than government. Yeah. Okay, it's not perfect, but it would still massively improve that independence, that accountability. Look at the National Order Office as a sort of way, which is a, which is a bit better as a model. Yeah. And when we looked at, we were talking the the um, royal, uh, having a royal commission, which is set up of independent scientists and that kind of deals with the strategic absence that we're going to move. We might have independent scientists reviewing environmental policy across the UK and pointing out where there are gaps and that worked until that, the World Commission on Environmental Pollution worked really really well but was abolished in the bonfire of the Quangos uh, because it was duplicating the role that was done by Brussels. But okay. now Brussels has gone. We could breathe new life back into that. It could be answerable to you know all four um, uh, 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 parliaments in the UK, and then you've got something at least that's you know that's outside DEFRA yeah. and looking down on it, and you've got proper separation of power. Um, so is that more, more of a sort of advisory, forward-looking role, say the horizon scanning, what's out there, what are we going to need to do, what are the experts saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a way of reconnecting British science, which which has often advised Europe, you know, you know, uh, on, on, on the big direct, the Habitats Directive, the Air Quality Directive and things like that, were led a lot by British pouring our knowledge into the European Union. Mm -hmm. And now, well, that that avenue for our science goes, but you and is replaced by this sort of dreadful idea of government science, which <laughs> I'm not sure isn't a contradiction. Well, no, there are great scientists working in government. Don't get me wrong, but but you've got to have some sort of independence there. I'm sure you've seen the bits of the Environment Bill where it says must get advice of experts who the Secretary of State considers to be independent, and you go, well, great. I mean, you see, that's it. You consider to be independent, and that's that's enough. And 
I mean, I think that kind of problem actually is found in lots of places in, in the Environment Bill where essentially just too much is left to government discretion. Yeah. Too much is left down to, well, you know, the government is saying, well, we'll do it and we'll do it fine. Nothing to see here, nothing to worry yeah, about. Yeah, absolute power and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And I don't think that does anybody any good. It's only, only when you've got creative space to have these discussions, which kind of go to the root of us as a country, if we want to go back to the way the common law system works and, and the British system worked before we joined the European Union, it was open for healthy debate and discussion, not concentrating absolutely everything in the hands of a minister who is going to come and go every year. I mean, it's, it, it's not a sensible way of doing it. And alongside that, we're disempowering our courts, or at risk of disempowering our courts, aren't we? I mean, there's talk in government of reducing the power of the Supreme Court and the High Court and actually their ability to hold government to account and their ability to, to, you know, to say, actually, no, that's not right. And you know, obviously, the I, the current administration was very upset by the Supreme Court's decision about the prorogation of Parliament. So obviously, there's an anxiety there. But if we take away that that level of scrutiny as well, and that ability to challenge, we're in quite a parlous state, aren't we? I, I don't understand that either, because essentially, those Miller cases, Gina Miller won her case technically in law, but she didn't win the argument in the country. No. Um, and so... What threat actually was it? That's to the not really what got them upset, though, was it? It was Baroness Hale coming out and saying, "You know, you cannot prorogue Parliament, and actually, this isn't allowed." That's the bit that got under their skin, isn't well, it? And, and where the, the problem there doesn't sit with the House of Lords, it sits with sorry, the Supreme Court, it sits with the monarchy for not actually, you know, stopping an illegal prorogation taking place. There's the unspoken bit in there that the Queen's advisers haven't been doing their constitutional role properly. I mean, and that that's if we you know fine take back p- control but do make sure that the, the institutions we've got are functioning properly and the mm. part of the problem with brexit i think is as we've is we've seen the british institutions aren't really ready to take that kind of power up and they've got to raise their game and recognize there are serious constitutional issues that arise from concentrating too much power in too few hands i think it's interesting tom you bring up the take back control <laughs> motto because that's still where i think unpiecing what that means and clearly part of that is from Brussels to Westminster, but there's so many other parts of that jigsaw. Devolution-wise, where Palo Power goes, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, still, I think, largely unresolved. Um, and, and also between the judiciary and parliament and government as well, I think that's still to be worked out. And I think that's what's behind some of these proposals, which I mean, agree are deeply worrying if they take away the power of um, people in civil society to hold government to account. That's, that's certainly worrying. I mean, you look at the, the judgment today from the Court of Appeal with Heathrow. I mean, wow, what a, what a great judgment. I mean, what great news to see what it really means to have uh, serious climate change ambitions. You go, well, that means you have to do things differently. You have to actually think about climate change when making these big decisions. Um, so, so what happens over this next year or more will be very important. And I think thinking about the sort of the previous role of the European Court and European Court judgments, there was uh, an insertion into the Withdrawal Agreement Act, uh, which went through early this year, the one which sort of approved Brexit, so to speak. Um, so previously, uh, judgments of the European Court were to be treated as sort of equivalent to Supreme Court judgments. So only the Supreme Court could overturn. There's a provision in there now which allows the government to make regulations to change that. So not, not to change the judgments themselves, but to change who can change it. So you have uncertainty, you have, you know, risk that these kind of environmental law, especially some really important and key judgments, which hold it all together, uh, could could be overturned by by lower courts and tribunals. 
Do you think that's a real risk? Do you think we're in danger of rowing back some of those protections that we've all worked so hard to put into place for the environment? I mean, because the air pollution thing is something that Clarence spent a lot of time taking the government to court about, Mm, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Brexit opens up the door for uh, environmental law, whether that's retained EU law or otherwise, to be to be done differently and to and to be wound back. There are deregulatory pressures in all sorts of ways, all sorts of time, but especially now, um, there's greater freedom to do it. Yes, that means greater freedom to do things better, but it also means greater freedom for some of these really important protections to be undone. Uh, and then when you sort of add into the mix the 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 clear deregulatory pressure that trade deals and trade agreements can have, in particular with partners like the US, and you end up in a situation where you go, well, hang on, we've relied on this stuff. And actually, people really like these protections. The the British people, whenever they get sort of asked in polling, you get pretty clear results coming back. People saying, yeah, actually, we, we want high environmental standards. We want clean air. We want good climate laws. We want good food safety standards. Um, so making sure that those are held on to is, is really important. And how I, much... Sorry, go on. I, I don't think this is the government actually um, deliberately trying to unpick environmental regulation. I think this comes from a different place. I think they just want instinctively to create as much power to themselves um, as they can. And that's fine. But if you look at this crop of politicians, they're all quite young and quite fresh. You know, a lot of the grey hairs have gone. We don't have a... We used to have a Lord Chancellor, but Tony Blair got rid of that role stupidly, in my view, in in, in the kind of custodian constitutional Mm. capacity. So they don't necessarily know what to do with this power once they've got it. So it's, and they don't know how dangerous that is. It's just this instinctive power grab, which I I don't, I really don't get, because I think if you have more confidence, we all know that the the best thing that you can do when you're trying to run something is let things go. That's that's the true sense of confidence. And so weirdly, in all of this, it seems to be driven by a lack of confidence. Yeah, they're power hungry, but insecure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think ill-informed a lot of the time, because I have to say, you know, deeply political statement coming up, but I have to say, I don't think the current administration really understand climate change. You know, the prime minister's on record as saying he doesn't really know what it means. They certainly don't show a kind of willingness or interest to engage properly in the debate and the, you know, the lack of support for COP and the, you know, the money running of COP26 in Glasgow later this year. I mean, all of these things seem to me to point to an administration that's not putting the environment and our need to respond to the climate emergency top of its list. The, the sort of thinking which is required, which is much more expansive, both in time scales but also sort of, you know, thinking across spatially and all sorts of different ways like that. Yeah, we're, we're not seeing... Uh, plans and approaches which seem to indicate that there is a real desire to to, to be doing things in a different way which is sort of required now. That's another reason why I think the judgment today is so interesting as well because in some ways what you're seeing there is a need for government departments, government bodies other than DEFRA to actually do something about climate and environmental problems. Too easy for it to become sort of housed and saying well it's it's DEFRA and family's responsibility and you go no actually it needs to be much wider than that. As Paul doesn't go out live, today's judgment, for those okay. people who are listening in, today's judgment concerns the Friends of the Earth case at the Supreme Court to prevent the third runway at Heathrow. Is that right? And yes. the decision was Court what? Court of Appeal, but yes. Court of Appeal, beg your pardon. Yeah, and what the decision was what, exactly? So, the, the court, I haven't read the full judgment, but the Court of Appeal <laughs> said that the, the, the plan was unlawful because they hadn't taken into account the Paris Agreement, okay. essentially, was what they said. 
Okay, so this was our commitment as a as a as a nation back in 2015. We signed up in 2016, didn't we? It became law 2016 that you know we would work towards reducing global temperatures by down to 1.5 degrees below two, but definitely 1.5, and we would take actions to mitigate those and support the climate and take positive climate actions. So building another runway at Heathrow goes against those commitments. Or at the very least that needs to be taken into account when making those yeah. decisions. Okay. So that's actually quite a powerful thing to have happened, isn't it? Because that gives enormous, I hope, enormous hope to to campaigners that we can say, actually, we can now hold government to account on a climate change or climate issue. Is that right? Is that fair to say? I mean, I think it opens the door to be yeah. able to say, it's not just it's not just when you're doing your climate policy you have to worry about climate change and and, and hopefully as well these arguments can be made not just about climate change but other environmental yeah. issues too and saying well actually when you're doing other stuff whatever that stuff might be yeah it's potentially going to impact uh, our environmental quality and you can't just sort of rely on saying well you know let them sort it out and we'll carry on as we were basically you go no you, you need to actually start factoring this stuff in a much earlier stage so this could open the door to a lot more cases for things like fracking uh, resistance to HS2 you know removal of ancient woodland loss of biodiversity habitat and lack of um, natural habitats all of those things presumably are just like this judgment like this can open the door to n- more cases of that kind you yeah, think? have to look into the details to know exactly yeah. what you can do but but i mean let's hope so let's hope that this opens that door there's, there's one other thing you know the government's track record on climate change is is interesting and certainly senior figures are are um you know equiv- equivocal about it but and the marine side, actually, they've not been too bad. Ooh, okay, so, you're getting a point to the government well, here, This you, is controversial, but let's have it. How do you have to do credit where it's due? You know, we've been doing stuff in the... Blue Marine has been doing stuff in the overseas territories, and they've been great. Um, so I think part... So it's not... It's not. They're not completely... You know, it, it, they're not... It's like I said, it's not necessarily about being anti the environment. I think there's probably, as you say, there's, there's a huge popularity among uh, 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 in the UK. We're one of the leaders in Europe in terms of in- environmentalism and that being part of the kind of British approach to things. And that as, uh, in the biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, UN negotiations, the, the, the UK is one of the thought leaders on that. Um, and so it's it's just that, you know, the, the legislative side, it's, it's just that it's too whimsical, some of this. You know, if we're going to do it properly, we need to use that brilliant international world-leading scientific edge that we have in these sectors. When I went to the UN negotiations last year, and, and it was amazing. In, in, the, in the break, they do these kind of presentations. And so many of the scientists there doing the presentations in the United Nations were British. Mm. And you don't... <laughs> If we're not picking up on that ourselves and we're not introducing that to our own way of working, then we're missing a trick. It's just share the power out and you'll get more good stuff growing out of it. And that's presumably what's behind your your um, demand or request for a commission, is it? To use, to use some of those scientific yeah. talents and... Yeah, to that. Find out what... You know, we, if you look at the UK fisheries, for instance, you know, what we want to do is we want to be ahead of the game and work out what it is that we want to get out of our fish, we, we were probably eating the wrong fish to start with. We're managing the seabed in a way that's highly destructive. You know, we could probably make the whole thing more biogenic. We would probably shift market attitudes so we ate better types of fish. But that involves strategic 
government intervention and and bless them a politician is not going to be able to make those sorts of decisions neither is a government scientist it has to come into commissioning across the universities and elsewhere Mm. to pick it up and doing proper long-term over the horizon thinking and having a way of shoehorning that in or you'll get trapped in a kind of electoral cycle. I mean, that's certainly not the conversation around the future of British fish that we're having at the moment, are we? Which which is, from my perspective, seems to be going down a rather dangerous route about saying, you know, setting up potentially a quite confrontational negotiation with the EU about, you know, who's going to get how much of the share. And of course, the risk there is that, is that overall that increases how much is, is, is getting caught rather than working collaboratively together fish obviously they don't have passports we all know that right and we need to work together and it was interesting when talking about some of the, the good stuff you guys doing you mentioned uk overseas territories is, yeah. is that significantly different to what's then happening to sort of the sort of uh, the uk marine area directly around the mainland uk yeah if you look at where well, we've just done a big project in the ascension island and the british government have been very good there and interestingly uh, we, we've put a big marine protected area, or the British government, we've, we've helped with a coalition of NGOs to, to, to put together, a, you know, a, a, and the Ascension Islanders themselves to put together a big marine reserve around there and, and pretty much exclude fishing from their waters. Um, and that's with the support of the British government. Um, and interestingly, in that kind of context, the European Union are not the good players because they're representing French and Spanish, you know, distant water industrial fisheries. Uh, and there's a significant amount of industry of industry capture of the European Commission. And so the British government, part of the difficulty with Brexit is that that British voice will get lost uh, out of the European Union and they'll default back to their to their bad old ways, if you like. And then and as you say, and we'll have exactly the same antagonism across the channel when we're mm. When when we're trying to negotiate it, and you just end up with you know the European Union's the the EU will choose one scientific methodology to determine how much catch they're allowed. Will to choose another. We'll both technically be compliant with international law, but actually we all know fish stocks will collapse. Well, it's interesting that interaction between what's science and and what's policy, and of course. Good policy and good law is based on sound science, but it, you know, there are other stuff that gets put in the mix as well. You know, you you, you clearly need to uh, think about what what values you're trying to represent, what values you're trying to protect, and and sometimes that conversation sort of hides behind science. It's sort of saying, oh no, but the, the science says this, and therefore we'll do it. And that sort of conversation which you were presenting might come up. You can see how it can start to look like that. Oh, everyone just sort of stands back and says, well, we're just following the science. We're just, yeah. you, it's not quite what's going on, really. I mean, we know that in, in, in court cases when you've got, yeah, I remember when I was a trainee and you've got the, the two witness, the expert evidence that you've got, you, you know, whether someone's had psychological injuries and you'll have, you know, really well paid up, very strong professionals, both arguing on mm. the other side. So science is not always accurate in these things. No. Well, that's where, again, going back to the OEP, the Office for Environmental Protection, Again, when you sort of dare to dream about how it might function well, what it potentially gives is a sort of authoritative counterpoint to government science. So rather than a government body or government agency making a decision and, and, and saying to, to the court, well, that, that was our expert view. And if we think that's the case, that's the case. Potentially what the OEP gives is, is, is the possibility to have an authoritative alternative to that, which gives the court, or in this case the tribunal, the possibility to say, well, hang on, actually, this isn't something which is sort of totally straightforward. We need to actually look into the facts here and look into w- which of these views 
you know, it, is it able? To, is it possible to say that one of these views is has more more value to it than the other? You know, or, or is it the case that actually no, this, this is disputed and it's hard to work out? Um, unfortunately, there are other reasons why the OEP and Environmental Review will not do that. Not least <laughs> the complete lack of remedies available at the end. I talked about fines earlier, but I mean the, the current version of the bill doesn't even really allow uh, the OEP to overturn decisions um, if they'll. Uh, negatively impact on the rights of third parties, which you think about. But you know. So it's going to be completely toothless. Yeah, that's the concern, yeah, is that ultimately yeah. at the end of the day, what you can get, you can get a statement of non-compliance, but that's it. You can't actually undo the bad thing that's happened, which no. is deeply problematic. Yeah, and that's so different from infraction proceedings. <laughs> yeah, it's a million miles away. Really, yeah. <laughs> so is there anything to be hopeful for? I mean, are you hopeful at all, Tom, about the fisheries negotiation and some of the amendments you put forward and... I mean, I think, yeah, if you look, um, there's, there's some stuff we can do. If, if I mean, I, one of the big issues that, that in fisheries is that we haven't worked out who owns our fisheries. So we're not, we're arguing about something we haven't worked out ourselves, what it is and who owns it. So um, when you say who owns it, what do you mean? I mean, do we, well, we which distribute. nation owns which bit of fish? Or? We, we, you can own a fishery, you know, on a, okay. on a river. Fish, fishing rights are bought and sold. It's, it's a commodity at sea. We own technically the UK under international law and in the overseas territories. You just own it, and we license it out as an owner. If someone wants to come in and fish it, they pay a royalty. Okay. In the UK, that doesn't happen. They fish under an ancient public right to fish. Okay. <laughs> and quota was distributed free when they started to have limit catches, and then it was started to be traded between fishermen as they retired. Uh, and then it aggregated into a smaller and smaller number of people, and now you've got a small number of people owning most of the quota for, for the UK fishery. Um, and that was never formal. So when you go back to it, you end up with a whole load of... I've got a PhD student at the moment who's busy trying to work out how the ownership structure works. Now, that's a... And that's not to do with the, this, this myth we kept being told about our waters and how far our waters extend and our right to fish in our own waters. This is different, is it? It's, it's the right to fish that exists in British waters. Right. We don't okay. know. And that's, you really, if you're going to manage a public resource, the easiest way to manage it is to own it. Like the, you know, the Crown Estate owns the seabed and the foreshore. It can manage that. There's a, they have surveyors, they do leases, they do all that. And they just make sure things are done properly. Now, that doesn't happen. And that's the sort of stage zero, if you like, on how you own a public resource. Whether you then actually you know, distribute it properly is a, is a different question. But that's not there. So that needs to go in. And we could do that. We could always have done that. And other countries own and manage their fisheries better than we do. But that's the stage zero. And then from there, you've got you know, how we plan for it. Now, they have put in there an ability for fisheries planning, which is not you know, to, to, to forward plan. Now, it's a bit, a bit of a mess. <laughs> uh, uh, and they've got objectives which are, you know, motherhood and apple pie, but quite good. Uh, and there is a process that so you, you get a plan that's built up a bit like land planning, uh, mm -hmm. which is a good idea. Um, and there isn't an equivalent system in the European Union to do that. We tend to, in the EU, we tend to manage stocks on a stock by stock basis after they've started collapsing. Yeah, which and is too late. It's too late. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so. The bones are there for a better managed British fishery. But we come back to this point. The minister has so much power and there's this intrinsic thing that they want to keep power to themselves. They don't want any duties. They want powers and not duties. And tucked away in there are all sorts of little, little you know, get legal get-out clauses. That quite big sometimes. That's yeah. <laughs> there are few, when I say little in terms of small numbers of words. Yeah. <laughs> 
tucked away in, in deepest legalese. Um, and, and, and so you end up with just, you know, let go of the thing, do it properly. And yeah, you could have a functioning system where we were ahead of Europe in terms of our, our fisheries planning. We were starting to look systematically. And the other thing we've not done there is we missed a trick because we haven't combined it to marine planning. We have a huge marine planning thing going on about how we're going to plan wind farms and aggregate dredging and all the things we do offshore. And it's a completely isolated system, although administered by the same organisation, the Marine Management Organisation in England, um, uh, and and they don't talk to each other. So that's that's nuts. And so there is there's some butt bits that we could do that could be positive if we chose to make them, but that actually just take your hands off and let people do these things. I'm not feeling hugely encouraged by what you said. I'm feeling a bit encouraged. What what about more generally in terms of the environmental, you know, dangers that we risks that we run with with Brexit. I mean, in terms of, you know, whether or not the Environment Bill does what it needs to do or some of the other things that are down the track for us. I mean there's, what should we be looking out for, Tom? There's some similarities on the on the plans point and Tom's saying sort of stand back and let it happen. But actually there's sometimes as well when you say, well actually let's make sure we get the plans right in the first place. Yeah. So I mean our air quality challenges in, in many ways they many ways they were about government coming up with plans and us saying that plan's not good enough. We know that's not going to lead to the results it needs to. And being able to sort of look at a plan preemptively at that stage and be able to say, no, that's that's not good enough and, and have accountability at that stage is crucial. So the way the environment bill works right now, the government's going to set some new targets um, through perhaps not so independent scientific advice, etc., and then come up with some plans to, to get there. But it only accountability only really kicks in if those targets aren't met down the line. And when, of course, it's too late by then. And, and this is sort of the big problem. It's going, yes, of course, we need to plan better. We need to join these things up better. But we also need to have ways to make sure that what we sort of set off to do in the first place um, is on the right track. I mean, you know, these are long-term problems in lots of cases. You're not going to solve them quickly. You're not going to solve them overnight. So getting those mechanisms in place to sort of set us on that right path, allow for course correction on the way are crucial. Um, I want to come back to your question about where's opportunities here? I mean, I think mm. one of the big ones, obviously, I think is agriculture reform or sort of land use reform. Uh, I mean, the EU's common agricultural policy, I think it's well known how that can be damaging in various ways to the environment mm. over the last however many decades. Um, so there is big opportunity there. And again, relying largely on powers rather than duties, but there's the possibility. The, the flip side to that, of course, is we hear a lot in the news about food standards and what a potential trade deal with, in particular the US, but other countries might might do to, to food standings and with knock-on effects for for farming here. Um, and, and, I mean, there are concerns there about making sure that our... There's a few things that matter. One is, firstly, our domestic rules and regulations and making sure those aren't undermined or watered down in various different ways. But also looking at our, our global footprint and our impact. Or what are we importing? What, what goods are actually are we allowing on the market here? Uh, and again, what sort of country, what sort of market, what sort of goods do we want to have available for purchase in the UK? Um, and then the final bit sort of connected to all this, again, comes back to science, the right role of science. And you may have seen uh, Boris Johnson in a recent speech saying, oh, our approach will be science-led, not led by mumbo-jumbo, or something on the effect. But the, there are certain times when that phrase, science-led, can actually be misleading. I mean, it's referring to sort of different interpretations of, of a precautionary approach and whether that means that you should um, 
as the EU does and as we currently do, allow protections to be put in place when we're still not yet sure whether or not something's going to have a negative environmental impact. And, you know, think asbestos or, or yeah. think DDT or whatever. You always know actually being able to do stuff preemptively and precautionarily, obviously that's valuable and important. It's clear. Uh, and and the US approach simply is is uh, is weaker in that regard yeah. and is often talked about as being science-led, sort of requiring that you can scientifically prove that something is harmful before you ban it. And the, that sort of idea of scientifically proving something's harmful in some ways kind of misunderstands what you might get out of that process. So there's all these different ways in which not just you know, the laws and like, you know, the letter of the law and what it says. And you know, like Tom's saying, you have to read the little bits because the little bits can be quite big bits too. <laughs> But how we make them as well uh, is potentially going to change. And that's not going to happen sort of in one fell swoop. That is going to be a, a gradual process over, over the next years, perhaps decades. Yeah. Can I, can I ask a question about devolution on farming? Is, that, is it devolved? Uh, agriculture is a devolved matter, yes. So we've got the fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've got I some... mean, because we don't have that. Currently in the EU, the UK is one block. And then yeah. if anyone in the UK gets it wrong, the commission infracts the UK, which means the UK government can go and whack the devolved administrations with yeah. a stick. When we take that out of the equation, mm. the whole thing starts to fall apart. And and the glue is gone. Stuff in the UK internal market as well. I mean, like, so right now, my understanding with, with, with GMOs is that Scotland has, has, has banned their, their use in Scotland, but they can be used in England. But the, but the goods can sort of move around. But, you know, they might take different approaches. And you go, well, how's that going to work? And I just don't think the answers are there yet. I mean, there's a sort of talk about common frameworks. But, I mean, they haven't progressed since, I think, 2017, maybe 2018. No, and, it, and it, you know, you can do it in areas which aren't political. So there are some areas of food standards, Food Standards Agency in Scotland, the Food Standards Agency in London. I imagine they pretty much do the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I think they probably do. But it's because it's too far away from the general public. As soon as yeah. you get to one of those areas with like farming or fishing, which is heavily yeah. politicised, yeah. then then actually, then th there's a tendency actually for, for, for the politicians to actually stick a crowbar in just because they can. And that's really dangerous. Yeah. So what can we do? I mean, we should wrap up. This is absolutely fascinating. I think we could probably have another hour and a half of this conversation. What, what can we do as citizens? I mean, is our job to try and hold government to account how can we apply scrutiny um what 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 is what are the kind of you know calls to action that you could put out there for people who listen to the pod to take on board mm. i mean sort of obvious immediate things are to talk to your mps about the legislation that's going through parliament right now yeah. uh, so environment yeah. bill fisheries bill agriculture bill uh, we expect there to be a trade bill actually as well as yeah. the next few weeks and for it not to include various procedural mechanisms um which it needs to uh but it doesn't end there. I mean, I think thinking, talking about these issues, making clear what kind of uh, what kind of world, what kind of standards we want to have. And I think, like, I, like we've both said, I think it is clear that actually most people do want to have high environmental standards. We do actually sort of see that future. We do actually think the UK is pretty well placed to be doing some of that stuff. Yeah. The government, you know, has realised that, that, that that sort of desire exists, but hasn't quite realised yet what that actually will mean in practice. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's right. I, I just agree with Tom. I think it really is just making sure your MP is empowered, particularly if you're in one of those constituencies. You know, I, I live in a, in Bristol. Like our, our, our MPs are all very well taped up on this. But if you're in a constituency where you know the MP is just really doesn't get what's going on, go and see them and go and see them at their surgery and say, you know, these things are important to us because that it, it the, the Parliament is in the driving seat at the moment. And and I suppose the other thing is that, you know, I, I think 
you know, we, 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 there's a lot of negativity around generally, around sort of climate change fear generally. And I think yeah, anxiety, yeah. And I think, I think, you know, uh, there's something about this that says I think people should be a bit more joyous in the way they go about this because yeah, it's much easier to convince other people if you're approaching things with a positive attitude. So, so, so don't be down. I mean, I know we've talked about legal detail here and it's, it's you know, been a bit down on it, but the, the truth is this is how law is always is. Mm. And this is how we always explain things to our clients, as it were. It's, we, you know, when you don't hire a lawyer for a barrel of laughs, you know. So, 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 you know, there is opportunity in there and a, a politics will, the one thing about this sort of poli- populist politics is it will bend if there's enough, if there's enough you know, groundswell of opinion. And I think the UK is still one of the world leaders in in sort of environmental thought. So so be happy about that. Plan some cool stuff and you know, and I think I think politicians have come in for a really, really difficult time. And I think, you know, rather than going in and hitting them with a stick, I think we should we should try and sell them a dream. You know, that the, they're there, they're open. They're trying to create as much power as they hand as they can. They haven't got a clue what to do with it, really. And so go in, be positive, and say this is the vision we want for this country. And I think if enough people go in and say that, then we can make a difference as these laws are going through Parliament. Yeah, and we always try and point to the hope in on Planet Pod. So we may twenty twenty is the the year of hope and dreams, as well as, as as perhaps possibly the year of despair. I need to have you both back in a couple of months' time to tell me how we're getting on. But for now, um, Tom West and Tom Appleby, thank you hugely for joining us on Planet Pod. Absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. And to listeners, keep listening, keep getting in touch, tweet us, email us, visit the website. We really value your comments. So thanks for listening. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>